KMTT, Kimitzion Tetze Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Tet Vav B'Tamuz, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Pinchas. And you are listening to your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Erev Shabbat program, like every other week, is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef, Ben Chaim Shmuel Finkelstein. In the middle of Parashat Pinchas... I have a, another one of those classic Sefer Bar questions where we have a whole parak, two prakim as far as the chapter layout, but one whole section that deals with what we would expect to be in Sefer Vaikra, and that is the parak, the prakim that deal with Korbanatamid and the and Korbanotamusafim. The, the beginning of the parak is the Korbanat Tamid, and then we go into the Musaf of Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, Pesach, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and finally Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret. And the question is what this is doing in Sefer Bemidbar. Why is it not in Sefer Vayikra? Another question on the Pshat level that arises is why is Korbanatamid mentioned when we've already mentioned Korbanatamid in Parashat Tetzaveh? Rashi points out this problem and answers what he answers. But um, we want to, again, try to understand this within within the greater framework work of Sefer Bimidbar and understand what it's doing here, what its message is to us. There is an interesting, how shall we call this, quasi-midrash that travels around Yeshivat Haaretzion. Perhaps uh, uh, Rav Bazak is uh, most responsible for it becoming famous. I think he learned it from Rabotav, from his uh, rabbis before him. quasi-midrash because the midrash doesn't really exist in any safer midrash that we know, but it makes its way around in later books as if it's a midrash. Uh, it's in the Ein Yaakov, in the introduction, in the context of a, a famous midrash, and here I'm looking at the Sefer Torah Shlema. The Torah Shlema is a, a book that collects every single midrash, no matter how serious the source is, whether it's uh, midrash in the Gemara and Midrash Rabbah, or a later Midrash in Midrash like Achtov, which Midrashim that can get to well into the Middle Ages, um, Midrashim that we would give less authority to. In any case, it's a Midrash on the heels of a well known Midrash. Sefer Toldot Adam. Here we have a famous machloket. Ve'havdal recha kamocha Rabbi Akiva Omer zeklal gadol b'Torah ben Azai Omer ze sefer todat adam zeklal gadol mize. We have a machloket as to which pasuk is more of a klal gadol b'Torah. When we talk about a klal gadol b'Torah, we're talking about some sort of principle that really guides us throughout our life more than a principle that's specific to one place, but something that's overarching and relates everywhere. 
And here, Rabbi Akiva says, And Ben Azai comes along, and perhaps if we wanted to define this machloket, we could talk about a nationalistic view versus a humanistic, internationalistic view, um, a universal view, pardon me, where Rabbi Akiva is putting our interrelationship with other people within our nation into the forefront, and Ben Azai is putting our interrelationship with other human beings in the forefront. Then the Midrash, as it were, would continue in the following way. Shimon ben Paziomer, Matsinu Pasu Kolel Yoter, Vuhu etakeves haechad taasev aboker. Okay, that's already a misquote of the Pasuk. The Pasuk says that Takeves Echad Tasevaboker. Nonetheless, Amad Rabbi Ploni al Raglav Amar Halacha Keben Pazi. Okay, Etakeves Echad Tasevaboker is a Klal Gadol Yoter than this of her Todot Adam and Vehavtal Racha Kamocha. All right, the Torah Shlema, those who are interested could open up the Torah Shlema and Bereshit. Parakei Pasuk Aleph, and look at uh, the long footnote there. Part part of it's discussing this issue towards the end of the footnote. The Midrash, as we said, whether it be a real Midrash or not, and apparently it's not a real Midrash, because then the Torah Shlema would have quoted where the Midrashim belong. But as the world of ideas exists, an idea can exist without a source, not a halachic idea, but certainly an agaric idea, and whether this midrash exists or not, there is something to say about this midrash. And what is this midrash saying? The concept of korban tamid, this is a klal gadol batorah. This is a klal which leads us in every aspect of our lives, wherever, whatever we think about. This is very interesting, because even if we look into the original Parsha itself of Parshat Pinchas, we see, in fact, we see, in fact, that the Korbanat Hamid is given very significant placement. When we read about the Korban Musaf of Shabbat, ah, Shabbat, Olat Shabbat b'Shabbato al Olat Tamid v'Niska. When we mention the Korban Tamid of Shabbat, the Korban Musaf of Shabbat, where the Torah reminds us, but don't forget al Olat Tamid v'Niska. It's in addition to the Korban Tamid. Now, there's a halachic uh, significance to Alalat Hamid Niska as far as the timing of when is the Korban Hamid brought vis-a-vis the Korban Musaf, that the day begins with the Korban Hamid Shel Boker and the day ends with the Korban Hamid Shel Ben Harbaim, and all the other extra Korbanot will fit somewhere in the middle. But on a Pshat level, Alalat Hamid Niska, just because you have Shabbat and you have a, a significant Korban of Shabbat that does not remove our obligation towards Korban HaTamid. And so on and so forth throughout the rest of these parshiot. We read the Korban uh, Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, a significant day in itself. Alolat HaTamid, Yehaseh And likewise when we read about Pesach, 
and so on and so forth. by Rosh Hashanah, we can go on and on. That in every instance throughout the parak, which the central theme of the parak is the korbanot musaf on the significant days of the year, Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, and Chagim. The parak begins with Korbanat Tamid, and the parak goes back to the Korbanat Tamid constantly and comes back and says to us, don't forget Korbanat Tamid. And this really, truly is an important message. Life is made up of mundane, everyday routine and experiences. If we talk about here, we can talk about the Jewish calendar on the first level. We can talk about the fact that we have an six days a week, and then we have Shabbat. Shabbat is a day which takes us out of our routine, which is a different day. And that's Shabbat, and Shabbat is significant because of that. It's more of an experience. When we take that out of the weekly routine, and we get to Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh, now we've thrown in Hallel into our, to break up our monthly routine, and certainly in the months of the summer we feel this very strongly, where we go from Shavuot till Sukkot, no Hallel, except for on Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh gives us some point of light that we can look to, we say Hallel, more significant. Then certainly throughout the year we have the holidays, which really take us up to a new level of experience. Pesach, and Yitziat Mitzrayim, and Shavuot, Matan Torah, and Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, Shofar, Tshuva, and Sukkot, the Chag of of Simcha and Sukkot and Arba Minim. And then we can throw in also, though it's not relevant to our parak, Chanukah and Purim, all these days which raise our experience to a different level and take us out of the routine. And, and to a certain extent, and I believe we've spoken about this in a different context, these days make the year for us, make our experience. Because they take us out of this daily routine that is the same and it and it and 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 inspires us in new ways and gives us new direction. And we are liable to make the mistake that what is significant are those experiential days whether Shabbat or Shkodesh or Chagim, and that the daily routine is something that we have to get through in order to get to the next Chag, to the next significant day. And here the Midrash, and whether the Midrash was said or not, it's not important, because the idea of the Midrash is true, regardless. The Midrash is coming along and saying, Korbanat Hamid, Zeklal Gadol Torah. The Jewish life is not made up predominantly of those experiences. The Jewish life is made up of day-to-day experiences. What is significant in our lives 
is what we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, every single week. Without Shabbat, without Rosh Chodesh, without Chagim, how are we dealing with those regular days, those everyday days? What are we doing with those days? Tefillah, Talmud Torah, Mitzvot, how we treat other people on an everyday basis. We might be very, very Jewish on Shabbat. We might be very, very Jewish on Chagim. But that's not what makes up a Jew. A Jew is a Jew every single day. It's Korbanat Tamid. It's consistency. It's doing those basic, regular things that are everyday, that are, seem to be mundane and routine. And it's taking those actions and making them significant. That is the bread and butter of life. And it's true that what's better, bread and butter or a cream cake? Cream cake is much yummier, much tastier. But bread and butter is our sustenance. That is the backbone of our existence. And when the Torah comes and presents us with Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh and Chagim, Look how wonderful, look how great. We're bringing special korbanot. These are significant days. These are more significant, more unusual days than what we normally encounter. This doesn't come instead of the everyday existence. The everyday existence has to constantly be there, always be there. That is the backbone experience of our Jewish lives, of our Torah lives. Then when we have Korban Tamid in place, then we can reach to higher heights through Shabbat, through Rosh Chodesh, through the Chagim. This is a message which is crucial in many experiences within life. I'll give a, a couple of examples. We talk about when we're educating our children... We talk about experiences that can be life-changing. And we talk about... I'll give, I'll give one example. I don't want to go to controversial places. We talk about going to, to, to learn in yeshiva for a year. Yeshiva, seminary, whatever it is. The experience of a lifetime, this is it. Without a doubt, going to learn in yeshiva for a year is a very defining experience. Or more precisely, it could be a defining experience. But the true test of this experience is not what happened during that year, but what happens after that year. What happens in the Korbanat Hamid? Perhaps you learned a lot while you were in Israel. You were inspired. But the significance of those, of that ex- of those experiences, of that greater experience, is what you did with it how you translated it into your everyday life the significance going back to our original example of Shabbat is how Shabbat influences you throughout the week and how Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur transform your behavior throughout the year and how Sukkot makes you understand how much God has given us so we can be Oved Hashem B'Simcha throughout the year and Pesach makes us understand how God changed our lives by taking us out of Mitzrayim so we can be Oved Hashem throughout the year. And Shavuot is about Matan Torah 
and how the Torah influences our li- influences our lives throughout the year. Experiences are as only truly as significant, not as the feeling that we have as we experience that experience, but how we translate that experience into the everyday life, into the Korbanat Tamid. And with that, we will take a brief break and go to Rav Tavori. This week, we will discuss the first chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel, Rav Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog. Rav Herzog was born in Lomsh in Poland in 1888. His father was well known as a Rav, as a Tamid Chacham, and not long afterwards, after the birth of Rav Yitzchak Herzog, his father moved to Leeds to become the Rav of Leeds. His father himself wrote Svarim and was recognized as a Tamid Chacham. He taught Rav Herzog, the young Yitzchak Isaac Halevi, at home, and it seems that he never went to yeshiva. The famous Tamid Chacham Rav Herzog was a student primarily of his father and seemingly a great autodidactic person. We know little about his actual growth in learning except for the fact that he received smicha from the Ridvaz of, Slo- of who lived in Sfat, and we know from later years that he was recognized as major Gadol, as a major Tamid Chacham, and we can see it so evidently from Svarim that are left beh- that were left behind, and Svarim that were printed, and Svarim that are still being printed, as there are institutes that deal with the writings of Rav Herzog. When his father became the Rav of Leeds in London, so Rav Herzog learned English and continued his secular learning in different universities. He wound up in the university, in London University, where he received a doctorate for his doctorate thesis on the study of Tcheles. This work shows the erudition of Rav Herzog in many different fields. He had to understand, of course, the world of halacha, but as well as the world of science, various sciences, in order to really discuss the concepts of marine biology and tcheles. He was known, Rav Herzog, not just for being a major Tamid Chacham, but also was well-versed in many different areas of the world. He became a Rav in Ireland. He had two different positions until eventually he became the chief rabbi of Ireland. He was in Ireland altogether 20 years, from 1916 until 1936. His name and his fame were so well known that in 1935 or so, he was a candidate to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. There was a, an election to for the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and and as an interesting piece of history, there were three candidates. Rabbi Herzog, who at that time in 1935 was 47 years old. Rabbi Soloveitchik of Boston, who at that time was around 32. And Rabbi Amiel, 
who was considerably older than both of them. Rav Amiel won the election and became chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. And Rav Herzog returned to his home in Ireland. Rav Salavechik returned to his home in America. But the next year, when Rav Cook passed away in that year, in 1935, the position of chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael was offered to Rav Herzog. He had been known as a Mizrahi leader, as a Tzioni. He was offered the position and he came to Eretz Yisrael in 1936 and served as chief rabbi of Israel from 1936 on through the time of the establishment of the state until his Patira in 1959. During the years that he was chief rabbi, he exercised much diplomacy, dealt with many people, made many trips, and of course was very active in trying to save Jews and bring them to Israel in so many different ways. His son, Chaim, who became the president of Israel later, wrote a book about his own life, and he there wrote that his father was obviously a genius in many different areas, but he was rather unworldly. And he credits his mother, the daughter of Rav Shmuel Hyman, of Hillman, Rav Shmuel Hillman, as being the one who took care of the day-to-day affairs of their life. Rav Herzog was apparently brilliant in many different areas and a, a person of wit and repartee and diplomacy, but he did not seem to be that involved in the Havayot Olam in day-to-day life, and his mother, Mrs. Herzog, took care of the affairs of the family. Chaim Herzog wrote there that his father had tremendous wit, and some of the words of wisdom that he said became famous. He, they said there how he went to a, a certain occasion where he sat next to a priest, one of the famous priests of the time, sat with him, and they served ham, and of course Rav Herzog would not touch it. And this clergyman turned to Rav Herzog and said to him, Rabbi Herzog, when will you eat this dish? And Rav Herzog's response apparently was, I'll eat it at your wedding, when you invite me to your wedding. The uh, various statements of Rav Herzog were quoted as showing his tact, his diplomacy, and his quick wit. He was famous for his courage during World War II especially. On one of his trips to America to intervene and to try to save Jews, he was sort of stranded in America because they said it was dangerous to travel by boat through the ocean as there were mines planted in many places. Rav Herzog insisted that he return to Israel. As chief rabbi, he felt that people needed him, and he said it was worth the danger to come back to Eretz Israel. And it's very well known that when he came back, the state, the, at that time, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Palestine at the time, were very concerned about their own safety. The German army had 
gone through Egypt. Ramel was prepared with a tremendous amount of tanks to come, and it seemed that he was going to invade Palestine. And Rav Herzog made a mass meeting in what today what we call the area where Hechashlamo is, the center of Yerushalayim, the King George, at the top. And he had a mass rally in the street, and he made his famous declaration, Churban Shlishi Lo Yihyeh. He said, if you study Tanakh, you'll see where there is prophecy about the destruction, another destruction, but there will never be a third destruction. And Rav Herzog guaranteed that the safety of the land of Israel will be ensured. When he became chief rabbi, one of the interesting things that he did was he wanted people to know and understand that although he has many responsibilities in terms of in a position which is, in a sense, somewhat bureaucratic. He also was the Rav Av Bezdin. He was the head of the Bezdin. But he wanted to show that people continue learning at all times. He had a group in his house that met once a week, which was basically a group of Gedolei Yisrael, the greatest scholars of Yushalayim, used to gather to speak and learn Torah in his house once a week. This has been written up in certain biographies and certain books about Rav Herzog in the Times, but I was told about this Vad, the Pilpola Torah, this group that came to learn Torah from, from my father, who lived in America and came to Israel one summer to visit. He called Rav Herzog and asked Rav Herzog if it would be convenient for my father to call upon Rav Herzog and visit him. And Rav Herzog suggested that he come, I don't remember exactly, but I would guess it was around 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. My father came, and to his surprise, he wasn't the only person that came there. Rav Zevin was there, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, and others who were known as the biggest and they sat down to learn Torah, to discuss Torah. My father thought that uh, he wanted to have a private meeting with Rav Herzog, and Rav Herzog indeed told him, yes, you'll stay afterwards, we'll continue after the group of learning, we'll stay and we'll have our private meeting. During that meeting, my father said he was somewhat intimidated by the Gedolei Yisrael, who were all taking part in this conversation, it was like a free-for-all of learning, that he was very hesitant to say something. Finally, somewhere he thought he had a comment that would be appropriate, and he made a certain comment. And he said that people looked at him in surprise, and Rav Herzog smiled. After the, the group was over, Rav Herzog went to his library and gave my father one of his svarim that he had printed, and he inscribed it as a memory of not only of the visit, but of the visit to this Chug Lepilpol Torah, where the people sat, as I said, Gedole Yisrael sat and discussed Torah. Rav Herzog's Sfarim were written and printed in his life, but certain Sfarim were printed later and are still being worked on. One of the main Sfarim that he printed was the two-volume set in English called The Main Institutions of Jewish Law, which is a work of jurisprudence and to show in within English framework in an English language, 
the actually what the book is called, the main institutions of Jewish law. Halachic principles are expla- explained and defined in these two volumes. One of the first Sfarim that was actually printed in, in Hebrew in Lamdis was a sefer called Torah Sa'ohel. Torah Sa'ohel is printed, the first edition says, Shi'urim Amasecha Sanhedrin. Different Shi'urim on the Gemara Sanhedrin. When you read the book and you look at the book, you see on top of the first page, Shi'ur Aleph. And you see that Shi'ur Aleph goes on and then there are tangents from it and there are new tangents to, that, and it seems to be one flow. So you skip 50, 60 pages and you look to see and you see something continues and you look on the top of the page, Shi'ur Aleph. Then you begin to wonder, so you open up another 50 pages and it's still Shi'ur Aleph. The entire Sefer, Torah Sa'ol, was comprised of one Shi'ur. It was an extended Shi'ur. Many different issues were raised. Many side issues were raised. Many things were clarified. But nevertheless, this was looked at as one flow of Torah from the beginning until the end. And it's one Shi'ur. In the new edition, as the Sefer has been reprinted, I believe it was one of my friends, Rabbi Emanuel Warhaftig, who edited the Sefer and made it somehow more user-friendly. The idea of the Shi'ur Aleph, of one Shi'ur of the, of the Sefer, was something that was very captivating to me, but it really did make it a little difficult to use. Now that we have it in a different format, which is broken into topics where there is uh, there are more indices and more available more accessible for our use, it becomes a more uh, user-friendly safer, but somehow you lose this feeling, look at one shiur and how it just continued. The other svarim, and I said some of them were printed before, while Rav Herzeg was still alive, and some svarim have been worked upon and edited later. Rav Herzeg had plans to develop Medinat HaAlacha, to develop a country based on halacha. And therefore, he had to write and really try to clarify principles upon which a modern state of Israel can be based according to halacha. And one of the books, for example, is Hachuka, a constitution of Jewish, of Jewish law within the state of Israel. He also wrote about institutions of courts, of, for example, how we would deal with uh, Yerusha today. Uh, this week's parsha happens to be the law of the and the story of Benos Slavchad, where daughters do not inherit. In the modern world, it seems almost inconceivable that daughters do not inherit. Rav Herzog wrote a major treatise on the situation today and how he would have a proposal that daughters and sons should inherit together. As I said, these svarim are have been worked upon fairly recently and are still being worked upon. There are volumes of chuvos of his responsa. Some of these responsa were printed in his life and some have been printed later. His legacy in terms of svarim is quite large and, as I said, continues to grow. His legacy in other areas is known not necessarily because of the yeshivas that he began or the yeshivas in which he learned, but in his own family. 
And as we know, the name Herzog, his children have become part and parcel of Israeli society, of Israeli world, one son becoming one of the most important diplomats in the state of Israel, Yaakov Herzog, who himself was a scholar, who himself was offered to be the chief rabbi of other communities, who represented Israel so well in the debate against Toynbee in, in Canada. The other son, of course, became the president of Israel, and his descendants still occupy important roles in the government, important roles in the state of Israel. Rav Herzog was nifter on this week, Yud Tes Tammuz, in 1959, when he was 71. His Svarim and his family are the legacy that he left for all times. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. At the outset, we asked ourselves a question: What what is this? What are these this, these prakim doing in Sefer Bemidbar? And here is where I want to make one uh, stab in the dark, I guess, a suggestion. When we talk about Dora Midbar. What we know of Dor Hamidbar, or more precisely, when we talk about the 40 years of a maturing process that B'nai Israel go through in order to be ready to go into Eretz Israel, because as we've learned previously in Sefer B'midbar, B'nai Israel are not ready to go into Eretz Israel when they leave Egypt. And they need 40 years to get out the problems that they had if, as a result of being in Mitzrayim, they have to get rid of those problems. Forty years. What we read in the Torah about B'nai Israel and the Midbar happens in such minuscule amounts of time vis-a-vis those forty years. It happened within a year span, a year and a half perhaps. The significant time of B'nai Israel and the Midbar then is the silent time of forty years of Korban Tamid. Of everyday life the Jewish people learned not to be slaves, to be Oved Hashem on a daily basis, to recognize the significance of the man and the water that they received from Hashem. That it was the great experience of the Midbar. Not the ten plagues, and not the splitting of the sea, and not Matan Torah. All of those experiences apparently had little impact on B'nai Israel. The great experience, the experience that late left the great, the greatest impression, was the daily routine. Was the forty years of living next to the Mishkan, of living from God's feeding us directly into our hands. That was the daily routine. Was the great experience. That was the experience that has the greatest impact on us. We learn to internalize, uh, internalize this idea not to constantly be running from one experience, and I'm making quotation marks with my fingers now, to the next experience, but realize that the main part of life is the daily life, and that the Korbanat Hamid, our daily, everyday life, that is the most expor- important experience of our lives, and we need to take it, 
recognize its significance, and not always be looking to when the next great experience is coming, but learn that what we have in our hands, the everyday life, that we have to transform into the most important experience of our lives. Shabbat Shalom.